Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. I want to introduce our speaker. He's not a new person to you. He's an old friend uh, of Harvest. He's on staff here. His name is Benson. And when I first got to know Benson, he surprised me because he was the only person at Harvest who seemed impervious to my trash talking. Now, I have a gift for trash talking, and it's, it's really um, a gift that far exceeds my skill level in most of the things that I'm trash talking in. Benson didn't seem to care. And then I, as I got to know him, I realized because he's even more prideful than I am. I couldn't believe it. So he's actually secretly thinking more trash than I'm talking. I, I'm just kidding, of course. He's a, he, he's a great guy. I've really enjoyed getting to know him. He's got a heart and a mind that are raging for the Lord. And we think there's some great things lying ahead for him and his ministry. Would you help me welcome Benson to come and give the word of God? Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, could you please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11? 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, Today we're going to continue our series in the 100 things you should know about the Bible, and we arrive at a very uh, familiar passage. And whether you grew up in the church or not, whether you consider yourself a, a Bible expert or not, you've probably heard of the story of David and Bathsheba. Right? And the story begins with David right, and his fall from grace. But before you think that David just took one step off the edge of a cliff and plunged into his predicament, consider all the little steps he took as we you know, kind of unravel the story, as we go through the, the two chapters that we're going to look at today. And I I think you'll find that it wasn't just one step off of a cliff, but rather a slow, intentional decline off of a mountain. So at the point of this story, David is about 50 years old, and he's been king for roughly 20 years. And he's already distinguished himself as a man of God. He's, uh, He's wrote a lot of psalms, a lot of songs of worship and adoration to the Lord. He's been a good shepherd. He had the David and Goliath moment already. He was a skilled warrior when he was king. He won a lot of military battles and he enlarged Israel's territory. And he was a man that feared the Lord. If you remember, twice King Saul was, while King Saul was pursuing David, twice he had a chance to kill Saul. But he didn't kill Saul because he was afraid of the Lord. He didn't want to hurt the Lord's anointed. And as good as a man David was, he had a weakness. Right? He had a weakness. He had a thing for the ladies. If you see in 2 Samuel chapter 5.13, even before his incident with Bathsheba, it says, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And this is at the point where he already has two wives. And so he takes more wives and more concubines, which was a direct uh, contradiction to the requirements of a king of Israel. A king of Israel was only supposed to have one wife. And so when we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, we see uh, a host of little steps and little mistakes that David makes along the way. In verse 1, you notice that David is at home lounging around in bed when he should have been on the battlefield, when he should have been with his troops fighting a war. 
But David's too lazy to go out to fight. He's just lounging around, nothing better to do, leaving himself susceptible to temptation. And then in verse 2, while he's pacing on the roof, right, he makes a series of small decisions that leave him in, a, in an ugly place. Right? While he's pacing, he stops. And he notices a very beautiful woman bathing. And so he stares. And he stares. And he begins to lust within his heart. And instead of, instead of just walking away, he begins to lust. And even at this point, he has a chance to break free. But in verse 3, you notice, he sends for his servant to figure out who she is. Now, the servant's response is actually very interesting at this point. And usually people, when they introduce themselves back in the day, they used to introduce themselves with their genealogy. So, for example, I have a daughter. Her name is Eden. It would be, this is Eden, the daughter of Benson, the son of Chunlin, which is my dad's name. The spouses were never, never included. But here, the servant poses a question and identifies the husband. He says, is this not Bathsheba? the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah. This translation, David, I know what you're thinking about doing. Are you crazy? This, she is a married woman. But David decides to ignore that not-so-subtle warning. And then in verse 4, he decides to send for her instead of letting it go, instead of dropping it. And they have a little face-to-face, they have a nice chat, which leads to probably some foreplay, which leads to, you know, the deed, extramarital sex. And, and before you know it, in verse 5, after she returns home, she conceives and she's pregnant. Well, so what's next? Instead of confessing, David tries to cover up his indiscretion and he sends for Uriah, her husband, to come home for the battle. Right? So David brings Uriah hope in the home in the hopes that he will you know, get it on with his wife and when Bathsheba eventually gives birth, no one will suspect a thing. No one will notice. But David's plan fails, right? Because Uriah actually is an honorable and faithful soldier. He declares in verse 11, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in Booth, and my lord Joab and the servants of the Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife, as you live and as your soul lives, I will do no such thing. Translation again. King David, are you crazy? I have all my boys, my brothers in arms that are out there fighting, fighting your war for king and for country, shedding blood and dying, and you want me to go home and sleep with my wife. So that's warning number two from one of David's servants, right? And David's response another decision to ignore. So he tries his plan of deception and, and cover-up again. He tries to get Uriah drunk, and so in his drunken state, he'll go home and sleep with his wife. But Uriah proves to be a very honorable man once again. He'd rather sleep with a bunch of dudes with David's servant than go home to his beautiful wife. And so David is probably very frustrated and angry at this point. He's probably thinking, what's wrong with this guy Uriah. He is not a normal dude. And I was thinking the exact same thing as well. But David decides to take it up another notch. 
And he finally makes the decision, all right, I need to have this guy killed. This is the only way I can cover up my sins. And so he sends a letter to Joab, the commander of the army, telling him to just you know, put Uriah in the fiercest part of the battle, and then when the people are out fighting, just pull away and he'll die, and it'll look like nothing happened. And the very interesting thing is he decides to send the letter with Uriah. Uriah is carrying his own death letter to Joab. If that was me, I would have been looking at that letter, and when I saw that, I would have been, heck no, and I would have been busting out of there. But Uriah is honorable. He doesn't look at the letter, and what happens? Joab executes his commands, David's wishes, and Uriah the Hittite ultimately dies. And I don't think the shock ends there in terms of David's wickedness. Because if you keep reading uh, 2 Samuel, the book, you'll notice in chapter 23 that Uriah the Hittite is listed as one of David's mighty men. So when David was running for his life from King Saul, Uriah was one of those people that risked his own life to protect David, to fight with David, um, and to just be his friend, to be his support. He was supposed to be one of David's boys, one of his best friends. In addition to that, David didn't just, didn't just have Uriah killed. I mean, it would have been very obvious if Joab sent, hey, Uriah, why don't you go take that city by yourself and we'll just all stay back here and you can die. No, he probably sent a bunch of other soldiers with him, probably a whole regiment. And so David not only killed Uriah, but he killed a bunch of other innocent soldiers who were fighting for God, fighting for country, fighting for king. And finally, in verse 27, you notice that David tops it all off. Just a few days after he has Uriah killed, he takes his wife. He takes Bathsheba to be his own wife. So basically, at the end of this story, we've noticed that David has broken like half of the Ten Commandments. And all of that because he had a lust problem and he decided to stay home when he was supposed to be fighting. So what does this story teach us? What does the story of David teach us? I believe it teaches us that the seeds of wretched acts, the most uh, despicable atrocities, reside within every human heart, reside within your heart, reside within my heart. They're present in even the best people that ever lived, people that have been transformed by the gospel. Think about it. David is described in the Bible as the man after God's own heart. If David could do these things, can't we? Do you think that you're really any better than King David? It wasn't like David just decided one day, hmm, I've been a good shepherd, I've been a good warrior, I've been a good king. And as we heard last week, God just gave me this awesome covenant promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I think I'm going to decide one day I'm just going to commit adultery and and cover it up with murder. David's path to the end of chapter 11 all started with the seeds of lust within his heart that went unchecked. And given the right environment, the tolerance of these seeds can lead to very, very ugly things that we're, not, we're just shocked at what you're capable of. I mean, so look, look at your own life. Don't you see the seeds of those things, those seeds of wickedness and evil plague our hearts, plague your heart as it plagues David's heart? 
I mean, don't you see pride, envy, lust, anger, greed, self-pity, and self-centeredness? And don't you know what can become of these seeds if they're watered properly, if they're given the right soil, the right environment to grow? I think we are far, we are capable of far more than, or far worse things than we could ever imagine. But the problem is, we tend to tolerate these things. We tend to tolerate these seeds in our heart. We don't think it's that big of a deal. I believe the reason we're able to tolerate these things, these evil seeds within our heart, is because we don't recognize the depravity. We don't recognize the potential for destruction. And we say, we justify ourselves by saying, what's the big deal? Right? We like to use that phrase, what's the big deal? What's the big deal if I tell a little white lie here and there? What's the big deal if I sneak an extended gaze at another man's wife? What's the big deal if I'm jealous that my house is smaller than everyone else's house at harvest? Or that I'm the only person that doesn't have a house at harvest? Or what's the big deal if I want everyone to pay attention to me when I walk into the room? I want to be the center of attention. Or what's the big deal if I slightly favor one of my kids over another? I'm sure David thought the same thing when he decided to stay home from battle. What's the big deal if I stay home while my troops fight? Well, as we learn from the story of David, it is a big deal. It is a very big deal because these seeds can blossom into something very, very ugly. And just think about an acorn. Right? An acorn is very small. But when it's planted, what does it grow into? It turns into an oak tree, a big oak tree. And the, the, an oak tree will produce more acorns. And when those acorns are planted, they produce more oak trees. And before you know it, you have a whole forest of oak trees, all from just one little acorn. So we need to adjust our perspective and learn to hate the phrase or the phrases, now what's the big deal? Or relax or calm down. It's no big problem when it comes to sin in our lives. And we need to squash sin in its infant stages. Because, I mean, think about it. It's a lot easier to squash an acorn than it is to demolish a forest. And no one says, now what's the big deal? Or relax or calm down no big problem when it comes to sin in our lives. When you're not a Christian, I mean, no one here, none of us can escape the destructiveness of sin. No one can escape the wickedness in your heart. I believe the key phrase in all of chapter 11 is the last sentence in verse 27. And it says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. What the author is trying to say is this, these acts, all these acts that I've described in chapter 11, they tick me off. It ticks off the Lord that David did these things. And the reaction we're supposed to have when we read this chapter is we should hate this as well. We should hate sin because God hates sin. I mean, David's acts were just horrible, horrible, utterly reprehensible. And it 
often, if you read it and you just really immerse yourself in the story, it begs the question, right? What on earth can make such a horrible thing, make such a horrible wrong, right? Really, just like an accent wall, you know, underscores different colors in a room when you're painting, the depth of man's depravity, as it was illustrated by David's story with his adultery and murder, I believe it serves to accentuate the greatness of God's grace, the greatness of God's love, and his desire to restore his people. And how do we know this? Well, we see this in the way God deals with David in chapter 12. What does God do? God sends a prophet. He sends Nathan to go speak with David. And Nathan approaches the king and he tells him this you know, heart-wrenching story about a poor man and a rich man where a poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb and he loved this ewe lamb like it was his own daughter. But one day a traveler visited a rich man and the rich man, you know, by the custom, by the culture of that time, he had to provide a meal and lodging. If he didn't, it would have been utterly shameful. And so instead of taking one of his own flock, something from his own flock, he decides to steal this poor man's only ewe lamb and he serves it to the traveler. And you have to understand that when David is telling the story, it's not, it's not a, he's not thinking that it's a, it's a trap or it's, he's getting set up. Because you have to understand that the king, the king of Israel is basically the combination of the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. He's all of that. He's the chief judge in all of land. So people would come all the time into his court when they had a case, and David would pronounce a judgment. And so when Nathan is telling him this story, he thinks, oh, it's just another case. And Nathan needs my input. He needs my opinion. He needs me to hand out a verdict. And so David renders a verdict, all right? I mean, as soon as Nathan is done telling his story, David is pissed. He is livid. He is angry. And he declares that the rich man needs to pay fourfold for what he stole. And not only that, he says the rich man, he needs to die. We need to sentence this guy to death. Really. I mean, death? Death for what really amounts to sheep stealing, right? Common theft. I mean, the whole idea of a fourfold payback, that is consistent with Mosaic law. If you stole a lamb, you have to pay back four lambs. That was within the law. But, but capital punishment for property theft, I mean, that was out of line. Capital punishment is basically reserved for things like murder, things like what David did. And so in the midst of David's anger over sheep stealing, I mean, the trap is set. Nathan has him on the hook. And he utters four very simple words that pierce his heart. He says, you are the man. You are the man. And those words were all it took to convict David of his transgressions. You see, David was so, he was so up in arms about sheep stealing and property theft, but he couldn't see how wretched and how horrible his own sins were. So going back to how God shows grace towards David, you have to notice how Nathan just didn't start off saying, you are that man. He didn't start off with pointing that finger, you are that man. In fact, most scholars believe that between the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, it was a 12-month period. It was about a year before 
God even sends Nathan to confront David. And so God waits for the opportune time to throw down. Opportune time to say you are that man because God doesn't really care about condemnation. He is more concerned about conviction. God cares more about conviction and transformation than he does about condemnation. Ultimately, God wants to see David's life transformed, not simply denounced. And if people are not ready to receive the rebuke of truth, you know, the defense mechanisms just go straight up. Right? You guys probably know, you've, maybe you've experienced a friend, or you, you've had a friend where they were doing something bad and you saw it and you wanted to point it out quickly and you say, hey, you are that man, you are messed up, what are you doing? And what happens, right? Boom, wall comes straight up and everything you say is just falling on deaf ears. And that's what was happening with, with King David. You know, God knew that if he, just, if he just said, you are that man right away, defense mechanisms would have shot right up and there would have been no conviction. No conviction, there would have been no uh, transformation. And so in the case of David, we see God's grace at work. I mean, just as David's path was a slow, slow, downward progression, in God's, we see how God slowly, intricately, and shrewdly works to bring about conviction in David's life. And the transformation that God was seeking was a heart of repentance. Right? A heart of repentance. Because David was so angry over theft he couldn't see the gravity or the importance or the utter offensiveness of his own sins. And he was so blinded that God had to send Nathan to open his eyes so he could repent. And in chapter 2, verse 13, that's what David does. Right? He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And if we look at Psalm 51, which is David's confession psalm after this incident with Bathsheba, he says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so when David is able to see the gravity of his own sins, when his eyes are opened, he takes personal responsibility for his actions. He mans up, right? He owns up. He says, Lord, I've done messed up. I've sinned. I've done evil in your sight. It's not a, a cheap cop-out confession like, oh, I never inhaled, or I'm sorry that you got upset. I'm sorry you got offended, like those backhanded apologies. But David was sincere. He really, truly wanted to repent. And as soon as David repents, God grants him a reply. Right? David, Nathan says, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Really. David's not going to die after he committed homicide, multiple times. I mean, David is pardoned after all those terrible things that he's done. I mean, how can this be? How is this possible? How is this even fair? How is this even just? Well, Eugene Peterson is a, he's a pastor and a writer, and he makes a very interesting observation, very interesting parallel between the story of Nathan and David with the story of Jesus 
and Pontius Pilate in John chapter 19. I mean, both stories have similarities, right? They're both courtroom stories. Nathan is in David's courtroom. Jesus is in Pilate's courtroom. And both are kind of messed up inverted courtrooms. They're bizarro courtrooms, right? Because in the case of Nathan and David, Nathan is the one, or David is the one on the judgment seat when he's the one that should be on the defendant's table. He's the one that should be in the dock, standing as accused and condemned. And in the story of John chapter 19 with Jesus and Pilate, Jesus, the judge of all heaven and earth, is in the dock. He's the one that's standing accused. He's the defendant. But with David's courtroom, right, God rectifies the situation. God sends a prophet. He sends Nathan to turn the tables, set things right, and put David back on the defendant's table. But in the story of Jesus and Pontius Pilate, no prophet comes to set, the, to set, the, to set things right, to turn the tables. And the judge of heaven and earth is sentenced to death, condemned for something that he did not do. And for what? So people like David, people like me, and people like you can repent and receive his forgiveness. Because Jesus was condemned on our behalf. He sat in the seat of the accused so that we didn't have to. So just as no one is immune to the power of sin and to committing horrendous acts, no one is too far removed from the grace of God, from the forgiveness of God. No one is too far removed from the assurance of pardon. I mean, you could be the most messed up person. You could have done the most messed up things. You could have been a child molester. You could have been like Bernie Madoff who swindled dozens and dozens of families out of their life savings. But as long as you repent, as long as you own up to what you've done and you say, Jesus, I am a sinner. You receive access to his forgiveness. You get to receive the forgiveness and the grace of God because he said, the death. He took the pain of the death on the cross so that you didn't have to. Now this is awesome truth. I mean, it is glorious truth. It is the heritage of our Christian faith. It is the foundation of everything, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. If you take that away, you take away everything. But this truth, I believe, comes with, a, with an asterisk. You can't just leave it like that. And I believe the story of David shows us this. Yes, God will forgive us of anything provided we humble ourselves, we repent, and we own up to our sins. And yes, when God forgives you, he will remove all the guilt and all the shame of your sins. And he will restore a right relationship with you. But that does not mean that God will remove all traces of consequence from your life. I mean, David sincerely repented. He, he penned the beautiful confession, Psalm 51. But God left stinging reminders, absolutely stinging reminders of the effects of sin for the rest of his life. If you keep reading chapter 12, you find out that the, the baby he conceived with, with Bathsheba died, right? Died shortly after it was born. 
And the Lord declares, the, Lord, the sword shall never depart from your house. If you read the, the rest of Second Samuel, you'll see David's house, his household is messed up after that. I mean, his sons are raping his sister, their sisters. The sons are killing one another. One of his sons stages a coup and tries to take the throne from David. And David has to run away. I mean, for the rest of David's life, his house is totally jacked up and totally messed up. Why does God do that? Right? Wouldn't it be great if every time we sin, as long as we just repented, we said, Lord, we're so sorry, we're messed up. We ask for your forgiveness. Wouldn't it be great if every time we did that, he would just give us a completely clean slate? It was, this, it was as if nothing happened. I mean, I could just literally kill someone that I didn't like and just genuinely repent. And God would restore everything after I, I repented as if I had never killed anyone. I mean, but what would that do to us? I mean, where, where would that leave us? I mean, we would just wouldn't think twice about sinning, right? We'd just sin here, repent. Sin here, repent. Sin, 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 sin. I believe the reason God leaves us these stinging reminders of sin, these stinging reminders of consequence, the effects of sin, is to remind us that we shouldn't have such a cavalier, such a flippant attitude towards sin. It's a daily reminder. I bet you King David, every time he thought about his house, he thought about his child that passed away, he was reminded he was reminded of his sins. He was reminded of his descent down into a downward spiral. And it should remind us, it should sober us to the importance or to the utter wickedness and destructive power of sin. And it should remind us that though God's grace is great and his love for us is unimaginable, it is always better not to sin. And so, in conclusion, I mean, we, are far, we are capable of far worse things than we could ever imagine. Um, so let us be diligent in hating our sin, squashing the sin in its infant stages before it grows into a forest. And we have access to the wonderful grace of God who desires transformation. So let us earnestly repent of our sins to receive his wonderful grace, but also let us never assume or expect that when we come to the Lord in humility and ask for his forgiveness and come to him in repentance, that everything will be all right, that there will be no consequences. I think our Father loves us too much to leave us in that state. Let us pray. Father God, we just want to thank you so much for your word and just for the story of King David and Bathsheba. We just thank you that you remind us of the power of sin and the destructiveness, the utter wickedness and the ravage that leaves lives, leaves lives destroyed, in dis, disarray. But we also thank you that this story serves to highlight 
and accentuate just the wonderful grace that you bestow upon us. That you love us so much that you sent your one and only Son to die on the cross on our behalf so that we could receive forgiveness, so that we could have right relationship with you, and so that we do not stand condemned on the cross. We just pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would remind us of this truth, that we wouldn't have a cavalier or flippant attitude towards sin, thinking it's no big deal, and thus diminishing or demeaning the work of the cross. Thank you so much that you love us so much that you send Jesus to die. And we just pray, Lord, that you would burn that on our hearts, Lord. Let us never forget. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.